Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 85. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at vjourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy, at networknerd underscore. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Hey, John, I'm doing great. We are pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to virtual enlightenment. So let's take a trip, John. Awesome, Nick. Hey, uh, this week we are talking with Cody D. Arkland, and I, I really looked forward to this interview because he's had you know, just some amazing uh, social media like posts about the emotional state of working in technology. Um, and he did not disappoint in this interview, uh, talking about vulnerability, um, just, you know, all the, the exposing ones like, you know, dark and creaky bits to, you know, what's going on in the internet and, uh, and what's going on in one's job. Uh, it, it was just, uh, just really amazing to talk to such a courageous guy. For sure. And I liked the way he gave us the play by play of his career changes and the emotional states that came with that at the time and how that changed as he went on. It's just fascinating. And I mean, it wouldn't be nerd journey if we just did this in one episode, right? Definitely would not be uh, typical of us. So yeah, it is uh, part one of a two-parter. We're going to talk to Cody D. Arkland about vulnerability, anxiety, and imposter syndrome. Cody D. Arkland. Thanks for joining us on the Nerd Journey podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I will confess immediately that I had to practice saying that name for about 15 minutes. Um, but that's not really something that our listeners really need to hear about. Maybe you could tell us about who you are, what is you, what you do right now, uh, who you work for, and what you do. Yeah, sure. So uh, most most people know me uh, in the community just from my time my time at VMware. Uh, I'm I'm not at VMware anymore. I work for uh, HashiCorp. I'm in a group called Technical Marketing for a product called Console. I won't necessarily unpack too far what what Console does on this because it's not that kind of a party. But uh, what I do is I take technical things and make content for people to be able to consume those things. So teaching people, helping them figure out how to use products. Um, building, building the hype train, getting people excited about stuff like I do. So, uh, that's kind of, that's kind of my spiel at VMware. I did the same thing for cloud management. And before that I was, a I I was an SE at VMware. So I've been at HashiCorp now for uh, about seven months. I'm really curious, Cody, when you're in technical marketing, do you get to control the types of things you write about and make videos on? Or just, is someone telling you we need content on these five aspects of this product? Yeah, you know, it's, I think tech marketing, um, so tech marketing is a very interesting thing. Uh, there's different companies approach it very differently. I've been fortunate enough that in both tech marketing roles, actually all three tech marketing roles I've had, um, I've had 
there's broad strokes, right? There's the broad things that we need to communicate and things we need to teach about, but they generally give me a pretty open brush to communicate that stuff in the way I want. Uh, I think it's really, I've, I've been fortunate to have really good leaders and I think good leaders let you shine in the best way you know how um, and don't necessarily force you into into a, a box of a, like a specific type. Like I've known some people who uh, in tech marketing, they're just forced to churn out white papers, right? Like people who are just forced to build these long, like 12, 14 page white papers about a thing. I've never been pressured to do anything specific. I've had suggestions, right? Leaders have come in and said, hey, I think a video series would be cool on this. Uh, and either I've agreed or disagreed and we've had good conversations about it. But I generally get to write about the things I want as long as I'm building as long as I have a strategy around it, right? If there's a reason why, I've never really been never really been shut down. I do have to fend off jokes about building brochures and stuff from from customers sometimes, which is which is funny because they they people hear the marketing side of the title, they don't hear the technical side of it. So that that happens sometimes, but it's a good joke. We have good laughs and we move on. Now, how often <laughs> are you actually engaging with customers in a role like this compared to when you were an SE? Oh, you know, it, it's um. It's definitely not as much as when I was an SE. I'll, I'll say that for sure. It's certainly a lot more than you'd think. Uh, I would say I engage with customers more at uh, at last job than I do than I do now. But I think that's because I'm still somewhat on ramping. People still are figuring out who I am. I would say in the past two months at HashiCorp, I, I engage with customers a lot more. Uh, we've had some big big announcements, big big things that people have seen my name on, so they conversations happen and like oh that cody guy he did a he did a video on that thing right can can we get him to come in and, and talk and and that'll happen um i get usually brought in for more um more broad conversations than just hey how do i do a thing right usually it's more like it, for example at HashiCorp, i work with a service mesh product um called console and i'll get brought in for hey how do we start with service mesh like where do we where do we begin in this and it's usually like bigger like how do we start to solve technical problems with this and i'll give my kind of spiel around around what that is um and i'll unpack like technical problems and sometimes i'll take that back to engineering sometimes i can answer it myself sometimes i'll partner with the the se to help build content like i, I help out se's a lot with deck work so like se will be like hey i need to i want to build a compelling deck around this and i'm kind of lost on, on where to start can you help me take this 130 page technical deck and turn it into something 20 pages that I can actually deliver in 30 minutes. <laughs> uh, so I'll do that a, a lot, a lot, a lot of partnership for like customer facing stuff, less stuff like where I lead it myself and I'm meeting the customer separately. I try to always keep SEs alongside me. No one likes, no one likes you meeting with their customers without them being in the room. That's just kind of, it's your customer. You should get to manage that. I'm just here to help you. Sure. That makes sense. I mean, I, I, I love that happening where I don't actually have to be there, but, um, <laughs> you know, to each his own, whatever. Um, maybe we could start uh, a little bit further back in the past because I, I imagine you didn't, you know, emerge into your adult life as a, you know, technical marketing manager. No, no, I didn't. So not. what, what was that path? You know, how did you get started in technology? Um, you know, were you originally trying to become like a professional baseball player? Like what, what, what was that process? You know, there's something I've been thinking about lately on this topic um, and trying to figure out a good way to like bring it up. And it's like this con this concept of being like accidentally in a place, right? I get these like phrases stuck in my head and like accidentally in a place is one that, that comes to my mind when I think about like careers a lot. And I think like some of the most interesting career stories are people who just ended up here through like a weird series of events. Um, I grew up 
typical kid with like 84 different things he wanted to be right pilot and all of, all of these random things uh, when i was you know growing up in my in my 20s i was working at verizon wireless and i was doing like advanced cell phone troubleshooting or whatever it was i was doing back then and i had a friend who uh was like hey i heard about this contract gig at pacific gas and electric major utility out here in california uh like this contract gig, it ends up not, it's not, you don't get benefits, the pay's okay, but you know, they hire people after two years into the real gig and the doors open. And so I did that and I was doing help desk and, you know, helping people fix Outlook PST files and, and teaching people how to do password resets and, and stuff like that. And, and, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I, I start off here for a reason because I remember being at at the help desk there and thinking, man, when I get badged, that's what, that's what the thing was. It was getting badged when you convert from being a contractor to having a real company badge. I remember being like, when I'm, when I get badged, I want to go work on like the cell phone team and I want to be the internal product manager for like our advanced cellular stuff. And that's because I, that was what I was doing right before. Right. So you build your definition of who you are based on like your previous experiences. So for, for me, like that was, that was going to be the pinnacle of my time at, at PG and E. Uh, and you know, series of events happen, things change. And I got into like the security space. I did product management for um, RSA Secure ID, so like the authentication tokens. And then a product manager at a customer side is different than being a product manager at at a vendor side. So there, I was managing the vendor relationship, figuring out how we do architecture internally, how we grow this product internally, so on and so forth. Uh, and i did that for for, for a little while uh, and then where i would say like big turning points for cody was right after that when i started getting involved with the remote access team and i started working on a, on citrix infrastructure internally and i had an opportunity perfect storm of events you know time is luck um i had the opportunity to refresh the architecture for their remote access infrastructure in Citrix. And this is where I really got like a lot of server experience and I made good allies and good friends. And I can say that that was the first time someone spoke up for me. Like it was somebody who, you know, you have these moments in your career, people take a chance on you. I can remember every chance people took or every time people took chances on me throughout my career. And this was the first big one. And it was a guy named Mike Gall. He works at Microsoft now, which is kind of funny, Mike, Microsoft, anyways. And I remember him sending out an email for me that was really like, really cool. And it, it talked about how, it talked about how I was the right person to build this architecture and the right person to own this project and build this kind of end to end. Um, and people responded to it. He had a lot of respect internally. People responded positively to it. It opened up doors for me and this was this was the moment like i got vSphere access shortly after that the first time playing in like a real vSphere environment i had my home lab right that i'd played with i knew what i was doing but like this is the first time i had like a multi-data center vSphere environment at my at my fingertips to do things with and like started learning about storage learning about how to like do the end-to-end -end develop or not developer sorry the end-to-end -end, like administrator role uh so that grew that was a, that was that was the next few years of my life. I was at I was at PG&E for about nine, almost ten years total before I before I left there. Um, so this is probably year four or five at this point, probably year four actually. And we did the thing that customers do. We wanted to go to we wanted to do a cloud a cloud project, 
uh, and I built up kind of reputation of being an automator and someone who liked to build like who did, like to automate processes instead of filing tickets. And uh, because of that, I got the opportunity to join this private cloud team and be the Windows guy on the public cloud on, on, the, on the not public cloud on the private cloud team. So we back then when we broke up the team, it was broken up super weird. There was a Linux guy, a Windows guy, an architect, and a network guy, and then our our team lead. We were super lean team. And we were going to bring in Vrealize Automation. Well, at the time, it wasn't Vrealize Automation. At the time, we were doing an RFP, and we went through and surveyed something like 60 vendors for different things. And we ended up with, with VMware and doing an enterprise hybrid cloud, so EHC. And if if the RS, when I transitioned from RSA to, to RSA to remote access was a big deal, this was like a planetary big deal when I got on the private cloud team because this was like when I started digging into like how to build real code and how to like start automate chaining automation together and like started figuring figuring out like the world got a lot bigger for me when this happened. Uh, so we finished up the project, uh, roles morphed. I became the automation guy. I wasn't the Windows guy anymore. I was just the guy who owned automation of infrastructure at, uh, at PG&E. And then uh, I started, I had my first opportunity to speak at VMworld and that was a big, big deal for me. Like that was something that I was just really, really excited about. And I had never done public speaking before. It was just never my, never my thing. Not, not that I didn't want to, I just never presented opportunities. Um, and I had the opportunity, uh, NSVU folks spoke up for me and let me come on their track and do a, do a session on, on, on uh, PG&E's journey to private cloud. That's the uh, network and security business unit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Th throwing the old terms around. And as luck would have it, I got on the docket for that session. And then because I was a customer, right? Uh, you guys both know being being in in the game, uh, customers get sessions often. <laughs> so I got tapped for three other sessions that year. So my first year, I had four sessions that I was doing in various capacities. Sometimes panelist. The PG&E one was the only one I did solo. Um, as just as just a regular session, and I loved it, and and that was I would say like the next monumental moment in my career because I was like, man, this is this was awesome. Like standing up and like I remember the feeling of presenting a thing and watching light bulbs go off in people's head, and that wasn't because like I was some like amazing speaker or anything like that. It was just when you tell a story, at some point in the story, people start building their own story off of it and you see light bulbs go off and they start building their own ideas off of what you're talking about and i remember that feeling and i was hooked on that feeling like telling teaching people how to do something and then watching them figure out how to solve their own problems with it i don't i don't want people to do the same thing i did what i want is to give you the path to figure out what you're going to do next with it uh and i was just hooked on that feeling so i, I went back to pg and &E and i had this thought of like i could totally be the guy who works here does the speaking thing, you know, does technology becomes like a technologist within, within the power company and things just don't work out that way. Um, you know, like PG is a power company, they're a power company first. Uh, and ultimately that was, that was what they needed. They needed someone to be a power company person. Our team got broken up. We got like our project ended. So we went back to not original roles, but like modified roles i i still headed up automation but my role was teaching teaching administrative teams internally how to do what i did from an automation standpoint uh, and it just it wasn't the same and 
my leadership is very supportive of me going and doing this kind of speaking stuff and being a part of like the community and they love that aspect but at the end of the day the job was a power it was a power company job doing administrative support for a power company um it wasn't to be a check technologist like i could be a technologist and be that but i was always going to be a power company employee first and i remember going to vm world shortly after like the next year after i'd spoke and i remember watching uh, a, a session by a couple guys uh, named Anthony and Nick. It was Anthony Burke. Uh, and I remember watching their session and being like, wow, VMware gives these people the freedom to come out and do this. They were doing it on Power NSX. I don't know if either of you remember Power NSX. Uh, and I just remember they built this from the ground up. And it was automation framework around bringing um, NS the NSX APIs into PowerShell. And they built this from the ground up. And I remember thinking, man, that's so cool that they let them just do this and they get to come and speak here now and they're still out talking to customers or solving real problems. That's what I want to do. And then I, could, I, I remember the exact moment. I remember the exact row I was sitting in at the Moscone in San Francisco. I was like, I, I want to go work at VMware. I didn't know how I was going to get there. I didn't know what that was going to play out like, but I knew that I wanted to go there. So I started that process reached out to a few people in cloud management that I knew and was like, Hey, I, I think I might try to go for this. What do you think? Go for getting into VMware. Everyone was pretty supportive, but I didn't want to like try to like cheat the system. And I didn't want to like have someone like refer me into some like special role somewhere. Uh, I wanted to come in from the ground up and, and I just felt like that was the right way to do it. So I applied for a SE role in Sacramento. And so here we are at, at the imposter syndrome chapter of the story. I remember being so excited to come into VMware. Like I remember no, no excitement that I'd felt previously in my professional life matched like how I felt coming in as just an SC at VMware. And I just, I was not a great SC. Like, I don't think that I was bad at the job. I think I was bad at thinking about like how my actions translate to revenue. Um, and in the, in the, in the field sort of way, that was just a really hard thing for me. And it was, people underestimate what it's like to shift from being a customer to being a vendor. There's not a lot of like blogs out there to tell you what that journey is like and what that transition's like. Um, Ooh, I, I feel like I just got an assignment. Nick, <laughs> did we just get an assignment? I think so. That's oh, wow. Your next that's your next blog post, John. All right. Well, I, 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 you know, sorry to interrupt, but no. I, it's interesting because I think that when I went through uh, you know, value selling training at VMware. I remember one that. of the things, one of the things I realized was, oh, I, if I had had this training before, I would have been a better IT administrator. Like I would have gotten more of my projects done because I never thought about how my actions within the organization uh, translated to revenue or whatever was important to my management chain. So I think that, you know, that's just a valuable skill within you know technology in general i think maybe coming I, I don't know maybe i'll pose it as a question coming from a utility is that harder yeah you know i don't know it's it's a tough i think that we all process our situations differently and like imposter syndrome like the theme of this episode or is is very much like kind of about how we all process these things and i think that this question is very similar um for me the act of coming from being kind of like a top five percenter and a utility, like delivering, mm -hmm. getting high ratings, so on and so forth. 
moving into being an SE, no longer focused on automation because my, my life was automation at that point. I was writing Ansible playbooks. I was building huge workflows around a number of different tools. And then coming in and being an SE, being focused on the entire suite of VMware products, not just about how to make people automate very well, like how to automate great even, right? Like focus on the entire suite of products, um, carrying a quota. Like that was a big thing. Like my brain just didn't handle that very well. Like just to be completely transparent. Like I just, mm -hmm. it was a stressor for me. It freaked me out. Like feeling like my success is measured against how many dollars I pull in. And that's like the biggest fable of all, like, but coming in and without having like any guidance on that and not having the maturity to be able to be honest about that. Um, and coming in and just saying, all right, I'm going to go sell some stuff and make some money. But then when you pull a 10% quarter and you're like, am I a failure? Like, did I, am I just bad at this? Am I, am I terrible at this? And then your second quarter is like 20% and you're like, I must be terrible at this. Like I am not succeeding. And oh, like, really? That's what you thought you didn't think. Wow. I've doubled my performance. <laughs> No, no, I was like, I still haven't hit the mark. <laughs> uh, and, and like I said, you know, on, on a series, like that's the biggest fable of all. Not hitting your quota is not, as an SE, that's not entirely under your control. If you're failing your technical validation all the time and like you can never prove the technical capabilities of the platform, well, then maybe you need to have a conversation. But if you're doing all of your stuff right and your customers are like, I love the product, I just can't afford it. That's not your problem. And, it, and right. I think that, the business in general is bad at telling SEs that because if you communicate that it takes away the responsibility of, of, of attainment. And that's a whole nother, whole nother conversation. Um, I wish if I could be critical, I wish that I would have had somebody sit me down and be like, Cody, you're great at what you do. Your accounts just aren't closing. It's simple, simple science here. Like you're good at what you do. You, the way you talk about this is good, but I didn't, some of that's on me because I didn't have the maturity to be honest enough with myself that that was the struggle I was having. How it manifested was just like, I can't sell this stuff. I'm not good at selling this stuff. And it wasn't ever about the fact that I just didn't feel good enough. Like, and at that, that was like when imposter syndrome kicked in and I never knew what to call it. Right. Like I just, it was just this like creeping thing in the back of my head that was like, God, I just don't belong here. I should have stayed at the utility. I should, I mean, Maybe the level of the game here is so much higher than what I was playing at. I should have stayed in in my rank. I should have stayed in my lane. Um, so I, I I ran through that for about a year as an SE, and I always I I still felt like when I got into automation conversations, I was good, and that was where my confidence came from. So like if there was if there was a piece of advice that I would share at this point of the story, identify the things that excite you and the places that your confidence comes from and build on those. You can't boil the ocean. You can't be good at everything. So you have to find the things that you are good at that make you feel good and build those as your foundation. You can branch off, you can go learn other things, but if you drop everything and try to do boil the ocean and try to learn all of that without tending to the thing that makes you feel good and makes you feel strong, you're going to crumble. And this isn't the first time it happened in my career. It's not the first time it happened in my career at VMware. Like my story at VMware ends with that happening. Hmm. Um, so it's like, there's a, you have to be aware of what your foundation is and what you're building on and build on that as opposed to saying, I'm just going to change my job and go learn something new. <laughs> right. Because, or if you're going to do that, 
be aware of the repercussions. Be aware that you're building a new foundation. You could destroy your home and build a new one, but you still need to live somewhere for a while. Right. right. Like you could bulldoze your entire home and start over with a new foundation. But then I hope you have a tent or a camper or a friend with a couch somewhere because you still need somewhere to live. And it's like translating that back to the, the real situation. You can go learn a whole new skill and you can drop your old life, but just be aware that you're doing that and that your confidence is going to be built from the ground up also. So give yourself some room to freak out and be a little unconfident. So, That's, yeah. It's so fascinating. Like, you know, the sales engineering ranks are thin, right? There's not enough people with the right profile and experience to walk into the role, like, you know, being, you know, technically savvy, able to learn things quickly and super personable, you know, able to be customer facing um, that, you know, if you try to hire somebody who is already, you know, a pre-sales technical engineer into your role and only limit you know, your hiring profile to those people, you're, you're, the likelihood that you're going to find somebody goes way, way down. So opening up your hiring profile to those outside, you know, kind of like you, hey, somebody who's had, you know, experience with our technology, you know, at a customer and, you know, has presented, you know, at the, on our largest stages before that, that makes sense. But what doesn't make sense is maybe um, not having maybe a formal, a uh, way to check in on people who are making that big career transition. Um, but I think what I also hear you saying is that people who are making that transition need to make sure that they're watching themselves, right? Have a resource, have like a trusted person that you can say, oh, I feel completely, you know, out of sorts, you know, if you are feeling that way to, to be able to, to support you. And it, remember, it took me a long time oh. to find what who that was. Sorry to interrupt there. Like it took me a while to find out who that was. Like um, I have my circle now, but when you leave your previous life, everyone in your previous life thinks, "Oh, well, good for you. You're promoting up. Life's good. Why are you complaining?" And you don't have that new like structure, especially. And I think this is especially visible when you go from the customer side to the vendor side, because here on the vendor side, we all bounce around like it's <laughs> like it's nobody's business, right? Like the community changes. And when you come into a vendor, the vendor world, your world becomes so much bigger. Like some of my best friends live in different countries now. And I would have never processed that as a thing when I'm working at a utility that's based out of the West coast. All right. Like it, it's your world becomes so much bigger and, and your support structure changes inside and it's, it's good now. Um, but I think what you said there is spot on. Like you have to be aware of who you are, and you have to be listening to yourself and the struggles you have. And you always have to have like a trusted person that you can be your most vulnerable self with. And that's super hard to find. It's so easy to say out loud. Um, and to be, to be frank, it makes people uncomfortable. Like vulnerability is still, I think that the, the industry is changing a lot to be very positive towards mental health, very conversative about uh, mental health. But vulnerability is still something that a lot of people struggle with responding to. People always want to, they, people always want to be the shoulder, but when you call somebody and you're like, dude, I just can't do this. I'm falling apart. I am, I mean, maybe I'm in tears. Maybe I'm punching a wall. <laughs> maybe I'm losing my like mind on this. Um, people don't always know how to respond and you, and more so people don't know how to respond in the way you need them to. So there's like a process of finding the right people who know you well enough or that you click well enough to, to process your emotion and give you what you need back. Uh, and I, I think that like, 
it's a tough thing to talk about because it sounds very selfish. But if there's one thing to be selfish about, it's what you need when you're at your weakest um, and what you need when you're at your, your, your hardest point. And I think that we haven't as a community done so well about that part of the message yet, like that you can be selfish about the things you need when you're in a hard spot. If I come to you all the time and I complain about the way you help me, well, it's a different story. But if I'm falling apart and like I need A, B, and C and you give me one, two, and four, I don't think that it's, I shouldn't come down on you for not giving me what I needed, but I need to be aware of going to people that support me in the way I need to be supported at the time. And I wish that we had more formal, like, I don't say formal processes, but I think, I wish that we were more attentive to setting people up for that community-wide. Yeah. Well, I, I would say, I'm, I'm so sorry to jump in here, Nick. I would say that that's not just a community thing. That's like a cultural thing in cultural. the West or, or whatever, right? I mean, it's an aspect of toxic masculinity, basically, right? To say vulnerability 100%. is weakness and not, you know, being able to say I'm having a problem should be like an expression of strength and self-awareness, not weakness. Um, and you know, especially in sales roles, I think that that can be a problem too. Like people, people want to know that somebody is solid or, or something as if, you know, as if we're all in the foxhole, like on a battlefield or something and, and things are at that stake, right? Like, I want to know that Cody's not going to fold behind me. Right. Well, you also, you know, you don't want people to think that you're a total nut job either. So I imagine that some of these conversations you're having with yourself about, I'm not hitting my number. I'm not performing as well as I want to. Maybe that means I'm not performing as well as my manager would like me to. And nobody wants to experience that. And, you know, it's even worse if you're an eight on the Enneagram and you think that vulnerability means weakness. I don't know what your number is, but I'm pretty sure I'm a one perfectionist. But I, but I know people who, who think that vulnerability they're just they're just kind of weak. They don't have it together. They need to suck it up. And then maybe it's a masculinity thing. Maybe it's a we don't have enough empathy for other humans type thing. But I'm really I think it's the latter, man. I think it's the latter. I sorry to interrupt you there. I just like I think it's the latter. I think it's the empathy aspect of it. And it's not that it's a kind of empathy. Because look, if you go 99% of the time if you go to someone and say, "Man, I'm having a hard day. I'm having a hard time with this." They're going to be encouraging. They're going to be positive. They're going to be supportive. Very few people are going to be like, dude, you had a hard time last week. Suck it up. Right. Pretty, it's pretty rare. Um, but I think that there's a difference between being successful and feeling successful. And I think that you can, your manager could say you're doing fine, but you could still not feel successful yourself. And ultimately how you feel about yourself is the number one most important thing. And I think that good leaders Good leaders would challenge you back, not challenge you back. That's the wrong word. Um, good leaders would ask you when you say, hey, I just don't feel successful. Good leader would say, I feel like you're doing fine. But can you break down for me what it is that would make you feel fine? Like what makes you feel successful? What would make you feel like you were doing well? And you might come back and say, well, I'm not closing deals. Okay, well, take the deals off the table because you don't have a budget. You're not buying this stuff. So what about that flow makes you feel successful? And I think when you start to decompose that stuff down, you get into these different messages. Like for me, 
for me, it's feeling trusted. For me, it's feeling depended on. It's feeling like when the team looks for somebody on a thing, that I'm that thing for, for automation in my case. Like usually it's like a code thing or, or something like that. Or and it really, honestly, it's for me and, and just the, the damage that I carry in my life. We're all damaged. We all carry it in some way. Like the damage I carry is wanting people to feel like I'm trusted. Like you can come to me for help and that I'm going to help you in the way that you need. Um, and I think that if I had been asked that question as an SE, like now is different. I've, I've grown a lot. I've learned a lot. I, I understand how to communicate my emotions in a vulnerable way, like that make it transparently clear how I'm feeling. And I, I didn't know how to do that back then. Uh, but if my manager had said, okay, Cody, you don't feel successful. What would make you feel successful? And if he had said, take, take quote off the table, what makes you feel successful would have been, I just feel like if I was involved in conversations where I could shine, if I was involved in situations where people trusted me and I was able to, to elevate that conversation differently, I would feel a lot better. And he might've come back and said, okay, so I'll move your job around and I'll make you involved in those conversations. And I probably would have felt a million times better because I would have communicated it in a, in a better way. And he would have had the opportunity to give me the empathy that I needed there. Uh, a lot of it comes down to being able to talk about what you really need and being honest with yourself about what you really need in a situation, not the surface level of like, I want to feel successful because it's like a broad term. You want to feel successful, walk to the mailbox. Like, you can get your mailbox, your mail out of the mailbox just fine, probably, and that'll be success. Like, there's something deeper there most of the time, right? Well, it depends on if your mailbox is actually at the end of the driveway, or if it's one of those community <laughs> mailboxes like mine, where to go get it. Solid. That, that seems like a bigger win. But what I was gonna say was, <laughs> I really like that point about making the employee define the success. It's kind of a process of self-realization, if you will. But at the same time. It is the manager's yes. way of showing the employee empathy, which is really what that person wanted. And it's a form of coaching. But we don't always want our manager to have to be the one that builds us up or helps us talk something out. I think in a lot of cases, it's probably going to have to be somebody else. You know, it, I'll, I'll ask you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip the script. I'm going to ask you, you guys a question back. And I'd like to hear both your perspectives on, on this. Um, I have this theory that a lot of mental health struggles in, in the community um, come from a lack of people listening to hear. Uh, people listen to respond more commonly. People, people will listen to things you say, but they have formed their response already. And I don't know if people always get to like really speak their mind. So I'll, I, I would ask you both to think about like times where you've had some of these struggles yourselves. And, and if somebody had come to you and said, hey, Nick, hey, John. I want you to just unload it all on me. Like you're having a hard time. I can, I can see that. I'm just going to listen, talk. I'm going to, I'm going to try to understand what you're going through. I'm going to ask you questions along the way, but I'm not going to respond with advice. I'm not going to tell you what you should do. I'm not going to tell you how to handle it. Just talk to me. Tell me what's going on in your world. Um, do you feel like that would have been different for you emotionally than when somebody comes and says, you're not closing deals here. I, I got some steps for you. I got some ways you can make that better. Here's some conversations you can have. Here's some ways you can position your conversation. Here's my suggestions for how you can get through this. I'm interested in your thoughts. So um, let me digest that for a moment because I certainly did not create my response halfway through your question. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, seriously, uh, 
you know, my wife and I went to pre-marriage counseling um, because I thought that that was an important thing to do. And one of the things that the counselor like gave us as a tool was um, know to ask for what it is that you need yeah. when you're making a request, right? So, hey, I had a tough time. I need you to listen to um, what what's going on. And I actually don't want advice. And sometimes we don't have the self-awareness to know what it is that we need until halfway through the person's making a suggestion. And then, you know, there's a second level of responsibility for yourself where you say, actually, what I don't need is your advice. What I just realized I need is you to empathize with me and yeah. tell me that things are going to be okay. Um, and as a partner, because this was marriage counseling as a context, like you should have the awareness to, to say, you know, instead of immediately respond and try to fix, you know, what the other person is doing is to say, you know, that sounds really tough. Um, what do you need from me? Do you need a hug? Um, it's, you know, hopefully your manager doesn't necessarily ask you that. Like, um, but, uh, well, I would say, you know, it's, it's, it's presumption and, you know, you build up to that kind of re relationship, you know, it's not just, it's not on the first day, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, and, and you, you know, you you get there by saying instead of immediately like gut, you know, responding, because I think a lot of us have this engineering brain where, you know, you hear a problem and go, oh, you know, this matches a, a pattern that I've seen before. And here's how I fix that problem, you know, and here's how I did it. And here's but I, I hear what you're saying and here's what I would do. like, you know, so that is a, a natural and instinctive response. And we just need to be aware that that's natural and instinctive and. And to, and to fight through that and to say, you know, hey, what is it that you need? You know, I it, first of all, present empathy. And then, you know, I think another probably valuable tool is, is reflection, right? I, I think I heard you say this, um, you know, and then restate it maybe in one's own words. It, like, I, you know, th this is hard stuff, right? This is non-trivial, um, you know, behavior, you know, so, but nothing easy is is necessarily you know it, the things that, that are are valuable to do are not easy to do you have to train yourself to get there so um i my response in a very you know much shorter way is to say yes yes that is what i want <laughs> <laughs> what do you think nick as I was thinking about this, Cody, I'm not sure anyone's ever approached me in that way, but I think it would be fantastic and it would make me feel great to just talk it out. I know there have been a number of times where John has done this for me, you know, even without realizing it or without us planning it. I've just talked something out and he didn't necessarily try to fix my problem, so I'm certainly grateful for all the times that's happened. And I will say that the engineer brain really likes to fix problems. There have been a number of times where my wife has talked to me about something and I immediately dive into making suggestions and she says, I don't need you to fix it, I just need you to listen. And I don't always know when that is. I will say that I recently read a book called Dad, Here's What I Really Need From You by Michelle Watson. And one of the stories is about a dad who would ask his daughter, hey, is this something you need me to give you advice on or do you did you just want me to listen and give you a hook and so i've started asking my daughter that and i think it actually really helps and 
you know, a lot of times the way to encourage others is by creating this judgment-free zone. Yep. We're not going to judge you for talking about the the hard things or the things that aren't as pretty behind the scenes. It's creating an environment of safety in which you can just be and tell it like it is. Totally. You know, I, I can say for me, uh, I can say this with, and I, I don't use this phrase like often, with 100% confidence, if in over the past three years, like I've had a couple of what I'd say like big emotional moments that have been really hard for me. Um, I can say 100% of those would not have happened if somebody had taken that approach. Like, and we're talking like some heavy times. I, I remember there was a time, I'll tell a story briefly and we can unpack it more in future conversation if you guys want. Um, I had, I had my first ever like anxiety attack. Um, and it was like this buildup of, of imposter syndrome mixed with, my feeling of my own success, feeling of questioning if I'm ever going to get to where I want to get to, team changes, reorgs, all of this stuff just bundled into like one ball. And this big thing happened at work and it was a misunderstanding. I had made a joke. I joke a lot. Um, and, and sometimes I push the line a little far and I push the line a little far and I made a comment to someone that was, that was, it wasn't like inappropriate. Um, but it, it, it offended them. Um, and he was very, he wasn't very, very offended, but he made it clear that like, that I had crossed a line and that was the right thing for him to do. Um, and it made me like reflect. I'm a very reflective person. Like I think a lot about, about what I say and how I say it and what I've done. Like it's just, there's literally times where I'll sit around the house thinking about something. It's a weird, weird habit, but I think it's a good thing. And reflecting on it just shattered me. And I, went through just i hyperventilated i was sobbing i got on the phone with him i was like i just i, I don't know what's going on right now and it was like all of this stuff happened at once right and he was great he responded well um but you can't process things in that moment very well and what took place over the next days was like feeling very lonely in that desperation and feeling very lonely in that anxiety feeling uh, and i can say that like looking back all i wanted was somebody to call and be like dude i hear you're having a hard time just let it all go talk talk to me ex ex help me understand it i'm not going to give you advice and I, there was plenty of people that I saw i was having a hard time and asked for it but everyone had uh, i'm going to be blunt and say everyone had their version of how cody should deal with this and we're all analytical people nine times out of ten we know the path that we need to need to go down or the rough path right we might not know the details and we might look to a mentor to give us those those detailed paths but we know generally like if i'm going north south east or west right like i can put the boat i can put the, the sun on one side and go in that direction um and i remember a lot of people giving me advice at that point and feeling like i really just want somebody to ask me how i'm doing and help like let me talk about this. Let me get through this. Let me talk about it. Let me have my feelings about it instead of taking what you're saying and integrating it into me. I am my own person. I have my own feelings. I'd like to unpack my feelings right now. And it was like a, a rare moment where you feel entitled to be selfish. And we talked about that earlier, obviously, but like that was, I can say for sure that all of the big emotional moments I've had in probably the past four or five, probably, I would even venture to say most of my life going way back to trauma as a kid that I dealt with, um, probably all would have been made monumentally better by someone just asking, like letting me talk, like at least like listening to hear, as opposed to listening to respond. 
so that's like if there was one thing I would hope that people took out of me being on this podcast and you guys have been talking about this is like the value of being an ear and the value of being a to your point Nick a judgment free zone and a place where you can talk. So my biggest fear now is that the way the way I've acted in the past, the feelings I've had historically, uh, you know, stuff with anxiety, stuff with imposter syndrome, the responses I've had, that that's that that's who people see me as now. And I don't want people to feel like they're they're fa- they failed me by making me not feel that way. But I never really had the opportunity to just talk through that stuff. Um, and now I carry around a fear that like that is who I am to everybody. My my biggest fear is that people see me as the person who, who complains about this stuff or is, is anxiety ridden or is fear or is afraid of failure. Uh, and that's, that's the thing I carry around as like my biggest fear now. Oh, that's fascinating. So not as like the ultra competent person who also has the confidence to expose vulnerabilities. Like it's the vulnerabilities that you've exposed have taken over <laughs> your entire personality yeah. or at least somehow yeah, it, that's you know, your it's, brand it's, it's not so much that like because i think that like the community has appreciated it um i think that there's a level i try to be transparent with the community about who i am but there is a level that i have to keep within within my circle and i'll talk at broad strokes around like things i've gone through but like i'm not going to quote word for word the things that i've said in my hardest moments because that's that's a trust that i have with those those people in that circle uh but there is a there's an interesting fear around the idea that the people that in that circle that have seen that level of you only think of you that way now. Um, I think that the biggest advice that I give people in careers and in finding like their place in this world is to do the things that make you happy and figure out what that is. And I'm not saying do the job that makes you happy because your job's never going to make you 100% happy find the things that make you happy and chase those. And for me, that's being a helpful technologist. That's a person that you can ping at 11.59 at night asking a Python question and I'll respond back that I'm helpful, that I'm good to put in front of your customers that you trust me to help with. That's the, that's the brand that I want to have. That's the person I want to be, the technologist that I want to be. Um, I want to be someone who, who also is transparent with their feelings and is, is good to talk to about when you're having a hard time. Uh, but what I don't want to be is the guy who fell apart a bunch of times in very public fashion and had a hard time with it. And I certainly don't want to be that guy amongst my like circle of trusted friends. And that's my, just to reiterate it, like my big mm-hmm. fear is that my, my close friends have come to know me as that person. Uh, and they probably haven't. That's probably a, a selfish fear. Um, but I share it with the group because those feelings are normal and we need to be able to talk about those in order to get, it sounds really corny to say, but in order to get healing from that, you have to let that stuff out. You have to expose that wound and let people address it and let people talk through it. Uh, so food for thought. You know, when we talk about fear and anxiety, it actually happens in a cycle. You feel the anxiety and then you try to do something to avoid it or not think about it. Keep it bottled up inside and maybe it goes away for a while, but it always comes back. When in actuality, to get relief from the anxiety itself, you need to go and face it on. In fact, you need to welcome it, much like what we've been saying in regard to talking things out. And that's the only way you're going to be able to push past it. If you've never read the book, Don't Feed the Monkey Mind by Jennifer Shannon about how to overcome anxiety, fantastic read that I'd highly recommend.
you know, it's 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 so interesting though, because this goes back to what John said earlier around like the, the concepts of like toxic masculinity and like cultural problems, because I think that we're trained, um, and I, and I don't think this is, I think it impacts men more so, but I've had similar conversations with women too who have who have it from a different angle that I can never understand. All I can do is be an ear for and and hear, um, but it's just a whole different whole different conversation there. Uh, but what I think is interesting is that we're trained to get over it. We're trained to like, go ahead and talk about it if you need to, get it out, get it over there, get it done quick, rip the bandaid off, move on, solve it, move on. Uh, and we're not ever trained to just let it happen, right? Like to, to accept that you're gonna feel this way. And I strongly believe that this is responsible for some of like the biggest meltdowns that people have is because they contain this stuff up so much and they bottle this stuff up so much inside and they won't cry, they won't, let anyone see them have a hard time. They won't tell anyone they're having a hard time because they have a brand they want to maintain that is something different and they don't want people to see that side of them. And I don't think you should run down <laughs> VMware main campus at Hillview and, and scream this stuff from the top. Like, no, unless, unless that is what makes you feel better. But generally speaking, like find your circle of people that you can be that way with because you need to get this stuff out. Uh, and, Kind of where I was going with that is this idea that when you let this stuff happen and you kind of, I always picture in my head like the soldiers holding up shields and they're pushing back like this crowd of people, right? That's that feeling of anxiety coming near like, I don't want to deal with this. I can't deal with this right now. But if you just say, you know what, I'm going to let this happen and you let it just roll over you, maybe the people just walk around you, right? Maybe they're not going to crush you. Like maybe it's a little tense and a little hard at the moment and it's tough to get through. But if you don't fight it and you let it, let it roll through, you address the individual parts of that anxiety, or you just have a day, right? Like you have your anxiety day, you have your anxiety moment. Like we're human. We, we are very emotional creatures that have been like tricked into saying that we shouldn't be. And if you let this stuff happen, you're going to be better for it. And if you, if you are lucky enough to have found people that you can confide in, you'll probably heal from it if you have that conversation. If you never talk about it, you're gonna rely on somebody who's probably got their own breaks, like their own broken parts, to fix something that is probably above above their pay grade in yourself, right? Whereas maybe just somebody being in the ear and hearing you would be all it takes. Maybe it would just be getting releasing the pressure. You build too much yeah. pressure up in a water line, what happens? It blows, like, it, 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 and you're in a way worse situation relieve some of that pressure and you'll probably be in a way better headset to deal with it. it it's interesting. This has triggered like um, an association for me. I grew up in this community and one of the practices was this thing called a clearness committee. So if you're having a, a tough time, um, like you could ask like, you know, people that you respected in the community to kind of sit in this committee, which sounds way more official than it actually was. And you would explain what was going on and literally all they would do is reflect to you. Like, it sounds like you said this. Am I understanding correctly that this is the way that it was, uh, that the way things are for you. And I hadn't really thought about that for quite a while, but um, that is probably if we could, you know, that's like a formal and informal process. Maybe I need to look up how that was done and what the actual like process was that I'm sure there were some rules or something like, you know, don't suggest um, so solutions because I think that was not the point. It was always about hearing out the person 
in providing a safe space and, and having that be like completely confidential as well. What right, I've tried so. to do in the past like two years, and I can remember the moment where this was like, and it was shortly after all of that craziness happened for me. Um, and ultimately, like just to fast forward, like that was what like that was what made me leave the cloud management group at VMware. It wasn't other people. Like there was frustrations I had job wise, just like any job. But I was never going to escape the situation that I had created for myself. And in order to like in order to fix that, I just needed to reset. And so I, I moved on to a different role. Uh, and there were like, so there was, there's more to that story. That's like business wise and like how the, how the products were doing and stuff like that. And I, I still love that group. I would have conversations with them. The VP of that group is one of the most incredible humans I know on the planet. A guy named Roy Ritthaler. He's incredible. Uh, but it was just time for me, time for me to move on. And shortly after that, I told myself that like, when I'm in these situations with other people, I'm not going to give advice until they ask for it, or I'm going to, I'm going to be very explicit and say, Hey, can I, I have some thoughts. Do you, do you mind if I give you some, some, some advice on this, which is an awkward thing to say, and it sounds super pretentious, but it's actually like one of the most considerate things you can do in that moment. Um, and it's hard. Cause like, like Nick, you said it best, like we're all engineers and like, we see a problem, like you see someone's bad code and you think I could break that up here. I could put a function there. I could put a method there and life is going to be great. And you approach people having a hard time the same way. You think I want to remove that pain. I want to remove the thing they're the struggle they're having selfishly, like in the places you're not supposed to talk about out loud, but we're here and we're going to do it anyways. Um, you also want the success of being the one who helped them through it, right? You want to be the person who gave them the steps that fix it. And I think that's like a weird thing to say out loud, but I think that people want, we all want to be needed by people. We all want to feel like the beacon in the storm that gets people to a dock. And you don't want to put it on like Twitter and say, hey, I helped Nick solve a problem today and that's great. But what you want is the self-confidence that comes from being able to give someone a few words that makes them feel better. There's nothing wrong with that. Sure. Uh, and by doing that, you actually build yourself up. Because what we're, what we're talking about here is you have to humble yourself in front of somebody else and or God, right? And that's a hard thing to do because we have pride and we don't want to park it Yeah, a lot of the time. Yeah. And so it's, 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 it's an interesting thing to think about like the idea of just being very explicit and not giving advice and making like being, cause like I actually have to tell myself in my brain, shut up, Cody. Don't, don't say it. Don't say it. Like, cause you hear people explaining things and, and maybe it's a problem you've solved in the past, but like, what they need more, more often than not, what they need is, is what you were talking about, John, the opportunity to just be reflected on. I hear you saying this, is this what it was? Is this what you're saying? It's, it sounds like you had a frustrating time with so-and-so at your work and that they bothered you because of this. Is that what you're saying? Cause they might come back and be like, no, that's not what I'm saying. Actually thinking about it out loud and talking about it has made me realize that I'm actually not really mad at them. I was more mad at what happened this morning, but now I'm able to like process it differently. Uh, more often than not, people need that ear. They need they need the open air to talk about it. Next conversation, you call them back three days and give them all the advice you want. But in the moment, shut your mouth and listen to what they have to say. <laughs> it sounds rude to say it that way, but it's it's more meant out of like care. Like hear what people are saying. If you want if you want to be the person who's there for people, listen to them. Yeah, that's terrific advice. I think um, just in general, like uh, personal, professional. But, you know, especially in the collision of those two things. This conversation got deep. <laughs>
Is it me, John, or did that episode get pretty deep? Uh, disagree. Disagree. No, of course. Yeah, definitely got deep. Can you imagine being someone like Cody who actually had imposter syndrome but didn't really know what to call it or how to deal with it at the time? Obviously, he does now, but I just found that extremely interesting. How many others out there have had the same problem or are going through it now and they don't really know what to do? Yeah, and and I think what's amazing about what it is that he did was that he called it out for the industry, right? So he's actually you know, pretty well known for being the person in the industry who says, hey, this is a thing that all of us go through. And if you're feeling it, then you should not feel alone. It's happening to all of us, you know, quite a bit more often than people are willing to, to admit to it. And, you know, talking about the anxiety that goes along with it. I mean, it's just so courageous to, to write about something so personal. Yeah. It makes me think there's another topic there that we could do at some point to go really deep on how vulnerable is it okay to be with your manager? Mm. How much stuff should you tell, not tell? What should you keep away? Just because of the relationship between manager and individual contributor. Sure, yeah. I can see that. I can see that. Definitely. Well, um, I think uh, we should probably get out of here because that means that next week we'll come here soon enough and we can get to part two of this amazing interview. I like it. Just a reminder, we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at Nerd Journey, and I promise it won't cause anxiety if you reach out to us. <laughs> Definitely not. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White, at Journeyman for Nick Cordy, at Network Nerd underscore, signing off. Adios. Adios.